<clears throat> hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Recovery Scene. Tonight I have Sarah Clark on. Um, Sarah went from, as we were just saying, heroin addict to law school, almost graduate, right? And then is tomorrow your six years? Thursday. So today. Thursday, she will be six years clean. Woohoo! Um, so that's really exciting. We're kind of like having an early birthday celebration. So that's neat. Um, don't forget to like and subscribe. Do both these things. Um, but I am going to let Sarah tell you how you go from being homeless and a heroin addict to law school and a really awesome like decorator and DIY person. <laughs> That, to me, that's impressive because I was just saying I can't do any of these things. So, Sarah, thanks so much for being here and um, sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. So I guess I'll just jump right in. Um, I was born in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and I've lived here my whole life. And I'm one of those people that if I go on a trip, I get homesick really quick. So I don't think I could live anywhere else. Um my mom and dad split up when I was four. My dad was an alcoholic and an addict and my mom was normal. Um, and she tells stories about how they would kind of party together on the weekends and Monday morning she would get up and go to work and he would be like, you know, he just couldn't stop the way she could. Um, and it would frustrate him that he couldn't because none of us want to be like that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and so they split up when, it, when I was really young and it was just my mom and I for a long time. I was an only child from both of them. I would visit my dad on the weekends and um, yeah, it was just me and my mom for a while. And I remember being a kid, um, I kind of like, I, I didn't really know what was happening, but I, I saw that my mom had a home and a, and a car and a job and like a, she's a normal upstanding citizen and my dad didn't. And I remember kind of blaming her like in my head, it was her fault she took this from him. She should have saved him. And I think that is kind of where my codependent relationship with him started. And from a very young age, I felt like the adult and I needed to take care of him and I needed to save him. And I did that all the way until he died when I was 18. And actually I'm in therapy still. And my therapist still tells me you're still trying to save your dad, Sarah, you can't. Mm. Um, so that's a, a lifelong thing, I think. But anyways, um, I never knew this until I got sober, but now I know that I always felt different as a kid. Um, I always, somewhere along the line, I bought into the idea that I wasn't a part of, you know, I was apart from and everything I did. Um, and I, I never could have vocalized that before I got sober, but now I know that that's true. And one of the first experiences I had, or that I remember, um, was in grade school. So like third, fourth, fifth grade. I remember they used to take me out of my class and they would put me in like a smart kid class. It was like once a week, they would come pull you out of your teacher and put you in this class. And I remember being in there with these other smart kids. And I remember we'd do like uh, science experiments and math problems. And I just remember feeling so inadequate. Like, I don't know if you guys messed up on the testing or what, but I am not supposed to be in here. And every year I would drop out. I'd you know, just, it's funny because um, I would say it's very rare for somebody I interview not to say this is something that is the same for almost every addict across the board. I didn't feel like I fit or I belonged. I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. I wasn't comfortable being me. 
that is absolutely a theme in addiction, 100%. Yeah. And I remember when I first got sober, hearing about that in the rooms and thinking, oh my gosh, me too. You know, like I said, I never could have voiced that before, but I think all of us somewhere along the line, we buy into the idea that we're different and that separates us from our fellows. And then we just continue to create that wedge, you know? Yeah. It's almost like we, not only do we feel like we don't fit in, we've decided no one else should think we fit in either. We're going to make that happen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, and then we end up alone and miserable and we can't figure out why. And it, yeah, we've created it and we've believed that for so long. And um, yeah. So I had them pull me out of these classes. I just wanted to fit in. I just, and everywhere I went, I was a chameleon and I didn't know that either. But looking back, you know, I could hang out with the smart kids. I could hang out with the preppy kids. I could hang out with the kids who did drugs. I could hang out with the sports kids and I'll pretend to be whatever you want me to right. be. So exactly. Just... That's also a common theme. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we don't have an identity almost. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. And then the next, uh, big experience in my mind that I can think of was in high school. My best friend, she lived across the street from me when we were like three or four. Um, and then she moved away to the small town in Oklahoma and she moved back our freshman year and she talked me into trying out for the cheerleading squad. And we tried out, um, in ninth grade and we made varsity for 10th grade. And it was like a big deal. And we were so excited. Only a few girls made varsity. And, I was, I'm already young for my grade. My birthday's in September. So um, everybody's already older than me. And then most of the girls on this team were older than me because they're juniors and seniors. And, you know, they're all driving and they're tan and they're beautiful and the guys like them. And I'm like pasty white, red hair, glasses, braces, you know, just like a dweeb. <laughs> I'm just a dweeb and I knew it. And um, yeah, so I am on this, I think the cheerleading squad kind of helped me stay on the straight and narrow for a little longer. Not that I ever remember anybody getting drug tested, but it was always like a thing. They could drug test you if you're in sports. Um, and then one night I smoked weed with a girlfriend before the game and like someone found out and the principal ended up coming and searching our bags and we didn't have anything, but it like gave the cheerleading squad a, a bad look. And so when I went to try out my junior year, I didn't make it, which was mm. like such a, a crushing thing and actually when I tell the story I usually say uh, I got kicked off because it almost sounds better than right. saying I didn't make it because it just makes you feel like so inadequate you know and it just pushed me towards the group of friends that were already drinking and already smoking um and I had said no I was actually a, a kind of goody kid for a long time and the people around me were drinking and smoking and I was saying no 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 you know I, I said no right up to the moment I didn't <laughs> and um the first night I drank, I remember I had a friend who, um, he had a shed in his backyard and there was like an alley. We would go out the front door to the alley and into the shed. And there was like uh, couches in it and his older sister would buy alcohol. And like I said, I'd always say, no, no, no. And for some reason this night I said, yes. And I don't remember any like, you know, fireworks or anything crazy. I just remember for the first time, it was like I could breathe. And I just, I didn't care about being smart enough or pretty enough or cool enough. I could just be myself and nothing else really mattered. And so that was the beginning. Um, and, and I don't think it was after that, that I like set out to drink all the time. I just kind of started to happen. I just started to say yes to the things I had been saying no to. And the first thing that really took me down was Xanax. I started taking a lot of Xanax in high school 
and it just made me forgetful and lazy and just just kind of blah mm -hmm. and luckily I was able to skate through high school and I barely graduated I was only 17 when I graduated and um my cousin and I had decided that we were going to be farmers <laughs> <laughs> Um, which is funny if you know me now, cause I'm like very high maintenance, the lashes and the nails and the, you know, farming, farming is not something, uh, my husband just texted and said he can't find the live. I think it's because your page is private, but Maybe. I don't know if we want to go into all that right now. <laughs> all um, I'm on this end, you keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, anyway, you might be able to just make that one post available for everyone to see. Anyway, um. Yeah, farmer. Farming is way too much like manual labor, hot dirt. But my cousin and I, we were really close. We were the same age growing up and we had agreed to go to this college out in a small town in Oklahoma. And so we went and um, my sweet cousin, she had never smoked a cigarette. She had never drank a beer. She had never had a boyfriend. I mean, nothing. And here I am getting taken out of our dorm room in handcuffs. I mean, I think it was very traumatic for her and I still have guilt over that. But I just started going to jail over stupid things like public in talks and um minor in possession of beer and i smoked weed in my dorm room and that's when they came and arrested me that night and um my parents bailed me out a couple times and then the third time i think it was the third time my mom said um i'm not gonna bail you out of jail unless you go to rehab and i'm like i had just turned 18 so this is in october and i just turned 18 in september so i talked to someone at the jail who tells me um it's just a three-day evaluation they're just gonna make sure you're not crazy just go over there it's fine and so i go to this little rehab in this small town and it's like a little house in the woods for girls 18 and under and so we fill out all this paperwork it's like a thursday or a friday um my parents leave and i sit down with the girls and i'm like okay so does the weekend count towards my three days and they all start laughing at me and they're like uh this is a 90-day program you're not going anywhere in three days <laughs> and so i immediately freak out you know um i ended up making it for seven days and then i packed my badge bag and hitchhiked back to that other small town in oklahoma and it's kind of crazy because I didn't know these girls told me that a lot of people have run away before and every time someone runs away um the cops come back and get them and they bring them back so i was young and dumb and didn't realize i was an adult i was 18 i wasn't court ordered to be there the cops couldn't come get me but i didn't know that so i'm laying in bed at night you know shaking thinking the cops are going to kick in my door any minute and take me to rehab <laughs> and because of that i stayed sober for a couple years uh, i moved back to oklahoma city and i got a job and i went to college and um, i was able to maintain and then a couple years in you know i I had those little court chart court cases. I they all went away. You know, I got a deferred sentence. They um I I finished my probation or whatever. And I just started to think, you know, I started to sell myself the lie that drugs were my problem. If I just drink alcohol, I'll be fine. I'm almost 21. I'm just gonna socially drink with friends. And so I started to do that. And I started to go to bars and clubs with friends. And again, it was okay right up until it wasn't, you know, and um I was about 20 at that time and and somewhere within that next year I got introduced to pain pills well I had taken pain pills before and I never liked them and actually I got my wisdom teeth taken out that's what it was I got my wisdom teeth taken out um I took those pain pills and they just were different this time and I don't know why but I just remember thinking I like the way those feel and they were like very low dose you know pain pills and I just started taking a couple here and a couple there and um I remember a few months later 
just being very like on edge and argumentative and my best friend the same one who who got me to try out for the cheerleading team she had been addicted to opiates I mean since she was like 17 or 18 Mm -hmm. she told me Sarah that that's the beginning stages of withdrawals and I didn't believe her I was like no it's not I'm not you know I had seen her uh feel like she was dying and I was thinking I don't feel like that and now I think she was right it was just the, the beginning stages of being irritable discontent restless um and one thing led to another until you know the the dosage got higher and the milligrams got higher and um it was probably like two years that I took pain pills and from the outside looking in everything looked okay you know like I still had a home and I had a vehicle and I mean I was robbing Peter to pay Paul and my bills were getting cut off and I had to you know lie and cheat and sell things and stuff like that but it wasn't like you could just look at me and see oh something is really wrong with her right you looked functional yes and which is even more it- dangerous than just looking like you need help <laughs> yeah. people are like oh she's fine yeah right and I mean my stepdad he's sober and so he knew pretty early on but my mom it had just been her and I for so long and I really had been an honest kid and she was codependent and naive and she just believed me everything's fine she just doesn't know how to manage money or she just you know she's a little dramatic or she overreacts and my stepdad told her for years Jimmy my mom's name is Jimmy Jimmy she's getting high my mom was like no she's not she's fine you know um, and then the time came where I couldn't find pain pills one day and I had been calling around all day. And at this point I was having like real withdrawals, the cold sweats and the shakes and all that. And, um, I called this guy who I'd known for years since we were kids. And he said, I can't find pain pills, but I can get heroin. And I hung up on him. I said, what do you think I am? A junkie? I would never. <laughs> right. My God. Um, And then a few months later, or a few hours later, not months, a few hours later, when I still couldn't find any pain pills, I called him back and I sold myself another lie that I'm just going to do it this one time. Um, And I'm sure tomorrow I'll be able to find some pills and it'll be fine. Well, once I tried it that one time, there was just no going back. You know, it was so much stronger. It was so much cheaper. It was just, I mean, everything they say in movies and documentaries and books, it's like that first time is just so wow that you chase that forever. And that's exactly what happened. Um, And within six months, I mean, my life was in shambles. I I lost my home. I lost my job. I lost my vehicle. I mean, at this point, you could look at me and see something is really wrong with her. I mean, I was wearing hoodies and long sleeves in the summertime here in Oklahoma. It's like 100 degrees, you know. I was just telling people, oh, I'm just chilly, like... (laughs) Right, sweating. <laughs> yeah um it's amazing so how slick we think we are I mean yeah. it really <laughs> it's so ridiculous um and I you know I thought people believed it that's the even more delusional part is that I really thought people believed what I was selling <laughs> right um so for about the next three years it was just a miserable cycle of um you know, it would get really, really bad. And I would call my mom and tell her I want to go to rehab and she would come get me and buy me new socks and underwear. And she'd find me a rehab and she'd take me there and she'd drop me off. And I would start to feel better a few days in. And I would sell myself that lie of remember that time when you were 18 and you went to rehab and you left after seven days and everything was fine. You can do this. Mm -hmm. You don't need all this extra stuff. You don't need rehab. You don't need sober living. You don't need all this foo-foo stuff. You can do it. And I meant it every time I meant to stay sober. And if you would have hooked me up to a lie detector, I would have passed every time. I'm going to stay sober. 
but something happens when I walk out those doors and I don't know anybody that's sober and I don't have any solution to stay sober. And I just go back to the same people, places and things. And I'm like, guess what? I'm a week sober. I'm 30 days sober. And by the end of the night, we're celebrating me being sober by getting high. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Craziness. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, it's all kind of a blur just because um, in that three-year period, I totaled three cars. I spent a couple months in the hospital one time for shooting bad dope. I got a flesh-eating bacteria. I almost lost my leg. They had to rush me into surgery. I mean, it was a huge thing. Um, I went to jail a few more times. Um, I don't know. I just, I would like kind of get it together a little bit and then I would just lose it. I would find a house to rent and then I would tear it up. And then I, I mean, it was just... It was miserable. Um, and even that time I went to the hospital, I always think about that because my doctor, his son was a heroin addict. And so he kind of knew how it worked and he knew what tolerance was. And he was giving me more pain meds to make sure that I wasn't really feeling the pain. And, and really I tell people being in the hospital was a drug addict's dream because you're laid up in a bed all day with cable TV, three meals a day. They're bringing you drugs every few hours. Your family feels sorry for you. Nobody's mad at you. You know, I would have stayed there forever if they would have let me. <laughs> right. Uh, but they didn't. They finally kicked me out. And my mom hadn't been, she uh, did a lot of her own work and on her codependency. And she started to put her foot down and she hadn't been letting me stay with her. But because I was in the hospital, she let me come home with her that night. And I did not even make it through the night. I remember I could barely walk. You know, I had just had the surgery on my leg. It was like a huge thing. Um, and I snuck out of her house in the middle of the night just so I could go and keep getting high. And that is like uh, just crazy to me how powerful addiction is because yeah. you just almost died. You spent months in the hospital. The chaplain would come in and talk to me. It was this whole thing. Like I meant, again, I meant to stay sober. And within like six hours, I was running and gunning again. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, and I don't know. Just... When people talk about the insanity of addiction, yes, that's what they're talking about. You know, normies look at that and go, what is wrong with you people? Yes. <laughs> We're addicted. That's addiction. Yes. It like takes over and, you know, in literature, it'll say in the end, we're using against our will. Yes. And it's entirely true. There are times that I am driving home and the next thing you know, I bought booze and it's like, okay. And, and it's not, you know, it's not anything crazy. Like I just black out and addiction takes over. It's like, no, I remember going there, but I had absolutely no intention of doing any of this. Right. You know, but it's almost like an autopilot at some point. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. And, you know, a lot of normal people, I mean, in early sobriety, I got into a lot of Facebook arguments about, you know, is addiction a disease or is it not? And do we have a choice? And I don't get into that anymore because it's not good for my mental health. But sure. one of the common arguments is that like, you know, you, you can't compare it to cancer because people don't choose to continue on with cancer. And, but somewhere along the line, we lose the power of choice. We don't get to just say, today I'm not going to do this. I walk out of rehab. I've been sober for, you know, a week or two weeks or 30 days. And something in my brain tells me it's a good idea to do this one more time. This yeah. time it's going to be different. This time nobody's going to find out. This time I'm just going to take pills. This time I'm not going to use a needle. This time I'm whatever the lie is. Right, right. 
and I believe it. And that's the sick part. I believe it over and over and over. I believe it. Yeah, because nobody wants to be that person. Nobody wants to be an addict. And the only way, well, I shouldn't say the only way, because there's a lot of ways that people have recovered. But for a lot of people, the only way to stop being an addict is to admit I'm an addict. Yeah. And that's <laughs> awful. No, you know, so yes, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was really hard for me and probably a lot of people because I was so, I got sober when I was 25. So I started at 15 and got sober at 25. And in those 10 years, I kept telling myself, drug addicts are like old people living under a bridge somewhere. Right. You know, I'm like a normal person. I'm young. I'm just having fun. Like, it's not that big of a deal. I'm, I have my whole life ahead of me. And it was hard to believe that you know, someone like me could be a drug addict, mm -hmm. but in the end, it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter where you come from or what you look like or how smart you are, or how young you are. None of that matters. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, addiction could care less who we are. Absolutely yeah. care less. Yeah. So after we're out of the hospital and we're already sneaking out to get high, what happens from there? Um, like I said, those, those last few years were just a whirlwind and I'm so grateful because in the end, it, it became the perfect storm for me to get sober. Um, I, my, my mom wouldn't answer the phone, you know, there for years, every time I said, I want to go to rehab, she would, you know, get everything ready for me and go. And this time I, I text her and said, mom, I go to, re I want to go to rehab. And she texted me back and said, that's great. Call me when you get there. And it was kind of like, I'm not picking you up. I'm not getting you underwear. I'm not doing any of that this time. Um, I had new charges. And so my probation officer wanted me to come and see him. Well, I couldn't go see him because I couldn't pass a drug test. And so he was calling everybody I knew saying, I'm going to send her to prison. I'm going to send her to prison. Um, I was dating a guy at the time that he was very controlling and he didn't want me to get high. And so then I would leave to get high and it would turn into a big brawl. And so I had been gone for a few weeks and I knew if I went back there, it was not going to be a good situation. Um, and so it was just the perfect storm. I started calling around, finding rehabs, and I had one criteria, will you let me smoke cigarettes? <laughs> <laughs> and I found one about three hours away in Texas that would let me smoke cigarettes. And so um, I just, I decided to go. Um, and so I drove myself down there in the middle of the night one night. And I remember on the way there, I made myself a promise because this was my eighth trip to rehab and all seven times I had left early. And so I told myself, this time, all you got to do is complete rehab. And I I thought, you know, you're not going to stay sober. I had already been to meetings and therapy and all these things they had suggested. And to me, none of those things worked. And so I told myself, you just got to complete rehab. That way, when you end up in prison, people will think at least you tried, you know, your family and they'll put money on your books or whatever. And so that's how it started for me. I'm just going to go down here and I'm going to uh, complete treatment at least. And so I did, I went down there and looking, I didn't know this at the time, but looking back, I started just one little truth, telling the truth at a time, you know? And I remember there was one point I had been there a couple weeks and this rehab, um, it actually, they, if you were over 25, they let you have your cell phone and they let you have your car and you could leave for a couple hours a day and all these things. Well, I was 25, not over 25. So they wouldn't let me do that, but I could still use people. I had my phone in there. I wasn't supposed to, but, um, so I guess I wasn't that truthful, but, <laughs> um, there was a girl I knew who lived in the Dallas area and I really wanted to call her and have her bring me something. And instead of calling her, I went and told my therapist, this is what I'm thinking. Please don't let me call this girl. Please don't let her visit me. 
Um, and that was like the, the first time that I remember like telling the truth and getting honest. Um, and then I had called someone that I had met through different detoxes and things like that before I went down there. And I had asked him for the phone number of a lady who could mentor me or sponsor me. And he had given me that. And so while I was there, they started having me work the 12 steps. And I thought being in rehab that the faster you work your steps, the faster you get to go home. So I was holed up in my room, you know, 23 hours a day, just writing and doing all this. I learned later that it doesn't matter how fast you work your steps, you're still gonna stay there. Um, so when I got out of rehab, I got out of rehab on a Friday and I went and met with this lady who was going to be my sponsor on a Saturday. And I read her all these things, everybody I'd ever hurt, everything I was ashamed of, all the people I was mad at, you know, and I'm sitting there after like two hours reading stuff and I'm crying and I'm a mess. And I'll never forget that she looked at me and she said, Sarah, you don't ever have to be that girl again if you don't want to. Mm -hmm. And right. she, she was right, you know, and I don't know that I believed her in that moment, but looking back. I remember feeling so much hope that maybe, maybe, maybe she is right. Maybe I don't have to be a liar and a cheater and a thief. And maybe I don't have to hurt the people that love me the most. And maybe I don't have to do things that I'm ashamed of and that are degrading and go against my morals and values. And um, another thing I did before leaving treatment was that I uh, set up a sober living house. So I called this girl and I did a phone interview. And so when I left rehab, I called the sober house, my mom and my sponsor. And I told all three of them, okay, my GPS says it's going to take me this many hours and this many minutes to get there. So if I'm not there by this time, you guys start calling me. And that was just another little way that I held myself accountable for the first time ever. Um, and so I go to the sober house and this other girl is there and she's my age and we end up becoming really close and um, there was another lady there for like a week or two. She moved out. And so we kind of like um, reformed this house and built it back up and got, got it full and taught these girls how, to, you know, and it kind of gave me like a purpose and like a sense of leadership and belonging. And this girl, um, her name was Anna. And Anna took me around to all, all the people she knew in recovery. And she introduced me to all of them. And it was a, I mean, I had walked in 12 step meetings before by myself and it was like very awkward, you know, and this was the first time like I went with someone and I felt like part of the group and, you know, it turned into like, instead of, you know, which I hadn't, I always say this, instead of like going to the movies on the weekends or going out to eat, it was like going to these recovery events. Not that I had been going to the movies because I hadn't done that and I hadn't done anything besides get high and get drugs and find money and get high and get drugs and find money. I hadn't done anything besides that, but um, it just became a way of life, you know, and for the first time in so long, people were calling me and they wanted to see and they wanted to hang out or they wanted to go out to eat or they wanted to do things. And for years it had been people, when they saw me come in, they looked the other way because they knew I was a liar and a cheater and a thief and they knew they needed to hide their stuff and they knew I was only there to get something and it was just such a, a breath of fresh air to feel like um, just like a normal person, kind of, you know, like proud of myself. Right. It's almost like, you know, we, we used to be that person, mm -hmm. but we totally forgot what it was like. Yes. And when we get to be that person again, it's like, you know, and, and <laughs> I say this all the time, but I always preface it with, I am not saying that you should go and become addicted to something so you can experience this feeling. <laughs> But it really is only something that somebody who's been given a second shot at yeah. life 
understands. Yes. You know, because, and it's like, well, you can't compare that to near-death experience. Well, sort of. Because, I mean, it might not have been like a plane crash where it's instant, but we were slowly killing ourselves. And some of us, by the way, that I have interviewed actually died twice. So, I mean, you know, for some of us, yeah, it was near-death experience. So it, it really is that kind of a feeling like, oh, my gosh, I am I have a second chance. What am I going to do with it? You know, and a lot of us do some really cool stuff with it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I can't even count how many times I overdosed, ended up in the hospital, ended up in jail. I mean, I'm so lucky that nothing ever happened where someone was seriously hurt or killed or a crime committed that I had been there or, you know what I mean? Like I see people that I used to run with who are serving 10, 20, 15 life sentences for things that they maybe didn't even I mean, one girl that I, I, we weren't real close, but her boyfriend shot someone and she's serving a life sentence. She didn't even pull the trigger, but she was there. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I'm so grateful that that was not me. Right. It could have been. Right. So we've done rehab. Mm-hmm. And then where did we go? We go to sober living. I was there for about six months. I got a job. Um, you know, my mom was very hesitant at first and rightfully so because I had done this so many times. And I remember I didn't even post on Facebook about being sober, going to rehab anything until I was four months sober because I had just done this so many times that I was embarrassed to even say. And I think it took years for people to even really believe it, honestly. Uh, so I go to sober living. I stayed there for six months and then I got a little rent house, like a block from my sober living. Cause it was like a little safe area. I couldn't find a job at first. Cause I had all these felonies on my record. I ended up getting a job at a background checking company. Oh, that's is ironic. Ironic. that is. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, um, I didn't tell him, well, I think I did in the first, in my interview, I mentioned that I was sober, but I didn't tell him I was like 47 days sober or whatever, you know? And so day two, he's going to teach me how to run a background check. And he's like, okay, let's run yours. Are we going to find anything? And I was just totally honest and said, yeah, you know, I'm sober now. So what you see on there was before I got sober. And I'm so grateful for him because he took a chance on me. He never looked at me different. Um, It was the owner and another girl who's the manager and they just treated me like a normal person you know um and so I'm really grateful for them and so then at about a year year and a half sober I decided I wanted to go back to school um when I had been sober before when I was 18 and I ran away that very first time I got a two-year degree so I went back to school to get a four-year degree but I had enrolled in school so many times to like show my mom how well I was doing, like enroll in school and then send her, look, I'm enrolled. And then I just never went that I had all these F's on my transcript. And I really didn't know if I could come out of that. Um, But I did. I went back to school. I took a lot of substance abuse counseling classes, substance abuse studies. I wanted to be a therapist. Um, I ended up making straight A's for two. I think I got one B my last semester. But other than that, I made straight A's. I applied to this master's program and I didn't get accepted. And I knew I wasn't going to, I mean, I didn't have all the classes that they required to do this, but for some reason I thought they were going to accept me anyway. I don't know what I thought, but I just remember feeling so uh, defeated, you know, and like, um, once again, my past is catching up with me and I'm never, you know, very dramatic. And I called my husband crying and I called my mom crying and I, 
had contemplated law school ever since the first time I walked into a law uh, courtroom when I was 18 with my attorney. He was, he is very, um, he's a quiet person, but his presence is loud. And back then he wore like bow ties. And I just remember the presence he had and being like, oh, I want to do that. And so I kind of contemplated it off and on. So then when I didn't get accepted to this master's program, I called my husband and my mom. I said, what would you guys think if I went to law school? And they said, I think it's a great idea. Do it. So I spent the next year studying for the LSAT, a law school admission test and getting my um, packet together. And you have to put every time you've been fired from a job and every time you've been kicked out of school and every time you've been arrested and all these things on there. I had a huge packet of stuff. And I was just like brutally honest about all of it. Like, this is who I am. This is what I went through. This is why I did these things. This is the day I got sober. And since then, you'll see these are the things that I've done to change. Um, and there was a school in Oklahoma City that I thought for sure, according to, they have like little charts you can look at. And according to my GPA and my test scores, they were for sure going to let me in. And so I get a call from the dean in like March of 2019. And she says, we really love your packet, your application, everything looks great, but you're on probation and we just can't accept anybody who's on active probation. Oh, good grief. And my probation wasn't up until December of 2021. And so I was just like heartbroken. I wouldn't be able to apply until August of 2022. And I was like, what am I gonna do? You know, my life is over. And my mom and my husband both said, call your attorney and see if there's anything he can do. And I told them like, I mean, he's good, but he can't force them to let me into law school. I mean. He can't do that. And so I called him and he said, bring me all the, th the good things you've done. So I went to rehab. I did all these classes. Part of my sentence, because I had caught those new charges, was to take three random drug tests a month for two years. So for two years, I called every day and I went down there. I never missed a drug test. I never failed a drug test. Um, I had all these 12-step sheets and all these things I had done, my undergrad degree, I took all that to him and he took it to the judge and he told the judge, she's trying to go to law school and they're not going to let her in unless these charges are dismissed. And the judge dismissed them all like a year and a half early. Wow. Yeah. And in the meantime, this was on spring break of 2019, my attorney said, well, I need someone to answer the phone. So why don't you come to work for me and start answering the phones in this criminal defense firm? And so that's what I started doing. And I called the dean back and I told her, um, I'm not on probation anymore. <laughs> and she said, uh, well, we're going to have to have a meeting. I don't know. She didn't sound very optimistic, but she called me back a couple days later and she said, um, we had a meeting and we still love your application and we want to accept you and we want to give you a scholarship. Oh, wow. Like, okay. So I started law school in 2019. I just finished my second year. It's a three-year, law school's three years. So this time next year, I'll graduate and I will take the bar. Um, it's been really, really incredible. I'm in the top 10% of my class and I got what they call a Cali award, which is like the highest, each class, the highest score gets this award. And law school is not like anything I've ever done before. It's like, they just talk, they lecture for 16 weeks and you take one test. And if you do well on that test, that's what you get. And it's not even like there are a hundred points to get. And if you get 98, then you get an A. It's like this weird curve thing that I'm two years in and don't understand, but it's like only four people get an A and this many people get a B. And so it's not even just how well you do, it's how well your classmates do. I don't know, it's very confusing. But anyways, I got a Cali award in criminal procedure which I think is hilarious because I'm a criminal and I know the procedure. <laughs> you got that down. Like. Yeah. 
I mean, my poor classmates, they didn't stand a chance, you know? Right. <laughs> and it's crazy, like, talk about, you know, just this perfectly written symphony of everything that had to happen for you to get to be right here. I mean, you would never, had you not gone through things that you went through, you'd have never met this lawyer. Yeah. You know, and you never thought about law school and he didn't ever help you get into law school. And now here you are. It's wild. Yeah. Wild. Which my, the, the lawyer does know my stepdad. So I may have known of him, but I would have never created the relationship. And he took me to court for 10 years off and on for all these cases. And he tells the story that one day we were over there and I looked at him and my lawyer is sober too. And I looked at him and I said, I'm so tired of coming over here. And he said, well, you know that whenever you're ready, you can stop, you know? And uh, so he calls me his little miracle. Yeah. And I don't know. It's just been, it's been so cool. That um, is really cool. I also met my husband in sobriety. Um, and we, I don't like telling this part because I feel like it encourages it. But we met in our first year, which is a no-no, I know, but. We did everything else right. So this is the one thing we screwed up, okay? <laughs> um, and it was a roller coaster at first because we were both newly sober and we both had all this court stuff going on. And we, you know, but luckily we, we are the lucky ones who were able to make it through. Um, and a couple years in, we bought a house and um, he, at the time, his son was 12. And so his son moved in with us and he's lived with us ever since. He's about to turn 17 next month, which is still crazy to think about um you know we've got to uh be the example of like sober parents and right. he's now starting to experiment with his friends drinking and doing stuff like that and it's so scary to watch because you can't stop them and really the only thing we can do is keep our boundaries and be the example of what right sober positive lifestyle looks like you know yeah, exactly. All we can do is educate and then the rest is really up to them. Yeah, which is very scary to think a 16-year-old has that much control over their life. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, punishing doesn't take away the desire to fit in or the desire to try things or, you know, all the stuff that teenagers go through. Yeah. You know, yeah. And even, you know, watch, I watched my dad do it. And my mom tells a story that when I was like seven, I asked, am I going to be like my dad when I grow up? And she said, we don't know. You know, that's why you should never try it because we don't know, you know? So it, I think sometimes people on the outside think, well, you watched that your whole life. Why would you do the same thing? We don't mean to do the same thing. We just think I'm different. Right. And my son has even said that I would never do the things you guys did. It's like, well, we didn't plan at your age to grow up and be heroin addicts or meth addicts or whatever. It's just one thing led to another. And next thing you know, here you are and you don't right. know how to get out. What people don't realize is you don't know that you're an addict until you find out you're an addict. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a game of Russian roulette, like I always say. And then it's progressive. So it's so funny because as addicts, it's like, well, I have my line. I might do this, but I would never do that. Like, yeah. you're a loser. <laughs> yeah. I, I addict better than you. Yeah. <laughs> like, so ridiculous because it's like a friend of mine said, and I say this, this is like my favorite saying, I have made it my own. There are no nevers. There are only not yet. Yes. 
in this life, period, you know, because he would say, you know, he was a, um, a, a chef in this restaurant and he would look outside and he said he would see this quote unquote crackhead, you know, you call everybody crackheads when you don't know anything about addiction yeah. and um, he, that would walk, you know, outside the window all the time, every night. And he'd be like, I'm never going to be crackhead, never going to be crackhead. Next thing you know, he's lost his job. And he was very literally in that same alley outside the window. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, don't say never because nevers don't exist. <laughs> yeah. And even the worst, I remember being in the worst place I ever was as a heroin addict and thinking, at least I'm not a meth addict, you know? And I think meth uh, tweakers think the same thing. At least I'm not a junkie. And it's like, what? We're all the same. Right. And, and you know, crack addicts are over here like, you both losers. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> We're all just, yeah. I know, it's so ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I always used to think, well, I only snorted. At least I never shot up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really yeah I mean and I said for years I would never I would never I would never I would never and then it just I mean yeah it takes over it just that's why it's you know considered progressive and it's considered chronic you you know and and I think that's where a lot of people don't understand you know that whole debate about choice versus you know and and that's what they don't get is it's a chronic illness yeah and it just keeps going and it keeps getting worse until your life is saved by going to jail yeah you know or you get admitted somewhere and maybe it works or you die yeah you know so but so thursday Mm -hmm. you celebrate six years yeah that's awesome that's gonna feel really good it does and it's kind of crazy because this last year has been probably the hardest just be and I mean COVID is a huge part of it but also I always knew my husband had a daughter um but he kind of really wasn't in her life or he would just see her on holidays and I remembered I told I've been telling him for years and to the point where my therapist told me you're only allowed to bring this up once every six months and you're only allowed to say in my opinion I think you should blank other than that you can't nag him it's not your deal whatever Um, so I was telling him her mom is an addict we don't know what's going on with her and she needs us you need to reach out she needs us we're in the position that we have a home and we we could take care of her and you know whatever and he did he reached out but he didn't really get anywhere you know and so um, in March of 2020 DHS called which is like the state I don't know if it's the same everywhere sometimes the CPS DHS whatever right right and they said she was not in a safe place and so we went had a safety meeting and they came and looked at our house and a week later she moved in and the pandemic hit and all the schools, her school got shut down. My school got shut down. My husband got COVID for a while. Oh, wow. And so it was just like a, a huge, <laughs> yeah. And then um, in late 20, sometime in 2020, my husband relapsed after five years sober. So he would have celebrated six years in January, which at first it was like, oh, he's just smoking a little weed. And, and, you know, I believe, I think we both believed, oh, he can just stop. He knows what to do. And then it got to the point where we realized he couldn't. And so he went to rehab. And so now I'm a single mom in a pandemic with these two kids. And it was just a, a wild year. But looking back, my husband and I had kind of been separated, not separated like physically, but like emotionally, mentally, mm-hmm. just grown apart um, and just we're kind of getting on each other's nerves and it's like you were saying earlier about I don't want you to become an addict to experience this but sometimes 
the worst things bring you to the best places. And I thought when he left for rehab, I really, in my mind, was saying, I'm going to support him through this. I'm going to make sure he gets on his feet and then we're done. You know, I'm, this is over. We've just grown so far apart. There's no way we can ever come back to common ground. And I just, I went back to therapy. I hadn't been in a while because of law school and he went to therapy and I just started praying, you know, God, if this is where you want me, show me that. And I don't, I can't even really put it into words what happened, but the shift has been so incredible that there's no explanation for it besides God. You know, mm -hmm. God came in and restored our marriage to something better than it's ever been. And this little girl, you know, before she lived with us, she lived in a camper. She never had her own bedroom. She's never been to the zoo. She's never really done anything. She didn't know who was going to pick her up or who was going to drop her off or what she was going to eat. And so, you know, all these years I had been telling him, she needs us. She needs us. And now I know that I needed her. We mm -hmm. needed her. And, you know, my son too, I love him to death, but he was 12 when he moved in. He was a boy, you know, she was seven when she got here, a little girl who was just craving attention and, you know, a motherly figure. And it's just so insane to think about six years ago, I would not even spend money on dog food. I would feed my dog old bread and stuff because I was not going to waste $3 that I needed for my drugs. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't buy toilet paper. I would just get napkins from 7-Eleven because I was not going to waste the money. To now, the state of Oklahoma is allowing me to have these two babies and raise them and love them. And, you know, I have a husband who has never cheated on me and never hit me, which to most people is like a, that's the, the minimum, you know. And to me, it's like, oh, that's, I've never had that my whole life, you know, um, I don't know. I could go on and on and on about the good things, but right. it's been, you know, if, and if I wouldn't have like sat down and listened to the people who came before me, I would have missed it all. You know, I would have missed the, I, and I know I get on people's nerves cause I'm like a positive Patty and I look at everything from the bright side and I'm like, I, not all the time, obviously I have my days, but most days I'm like very, very grateful. And I just don't think when you come from where I came from, it's hard to not be grateful that I have toilet paper, you right. know, much less that I have a family and I'm in law school and I have these beautiful children and my mom trusts me and I can go over there whenever I want, whether I call first or not. And, you know, I mean, it's just, I'm so grateful. Yeah. It's, it's, it's indescribable to Yes. Yeah, it's just indescribable that that feeling. Absolutely. Well, this has been awesome, Sarah. Yes. Thank you so much. Tell people where they can find you, by the way, on social medias. Okay. Um, I have Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. You can find me at Sarah Boo72. There's no H on Sarah, so just S-A-R-A-B-O-O, -O, the number seven and two. And then Facebook, I think I'm tagged here, but it's just my personal page is Sarah Clark. That's all. Excellent. And that's the same on TikTok, Sarah Boo 72 Yes. All right. All and right. I have a, a Facebook business page, Instagram, TikTok. Yes. But thank you so much for having me and for this opportunity. I'm so grateful and I appreciate it. You're so welcome. And we're definitely going to, um, you know, have you back on at some point and um, see <clears throat> where things are with law school and yeah studying for the bar and all that other stuff. That is so cool from heroin addict 
to law school. And soon it'll be from hair and egg to lawyer. Lawyer, that'll, yeah. That'll be really, really cool. Yeah. So, so uh, anyway, and thank you guys for watching, whether you're on the live or you're watching the episode. Again, don't forget to like and subscribe. That is going to do it for us for another episode of The Recovery Scene. And remember, addiction isn't pretty, but recovery is beautiful. And we will see you 